As Paul has been explaining to the church in Rome that there are those who will be uh, in conflict with others because, uh, you know, they um, have different viewpoints about various things. And here were two groups. One was more restrictive. They believed that eating of certain foods, celebrating of certain days was honoring to the Lord, whereas there were those who came from a background in which that wasn't so important. And he tells them to accept one another But today he goes through a number of principles that they are to follow when you encounter others who have various opinions and convictions in areas that are perhaps not clear, non-moral, and not explicitly stated or implicitly implied in the scriptures. And so here he begins in Romans chapter 14, verse 1. Paul writes, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, But not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil." For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean and they are evil For the man who eats and gives offense, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. 
The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Let's bow and ask for God's blessing as we come before his word. Our Father, you have declared that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And Father, we pray that your word would be honored, that you would grant to us insight, that you would help us, Father, to understand that we might follow and obey. In Jesus' precious name, amen. There was a story about a father I read this past week about how he had gone into his study to do some reading. And right outside of his window in the study, he could hear his daughter playing. And she was playing with her friends outside. And it began to be louder and louder and louder until he heard that they were arguing and bickering outside. And finally, he just couldn't handle it anymore and more. And he, he threw up the window and he said, Look, honey, you guys got to stop arguing and fighting so much. Just stop it. What's, what, what seems to be the problem anyways? And she said, Well, Daddy... We're just playing church. And Christians oftentimes have conflict in churches. And that's how some churches operate. They seem to be at odds. People are irritated at one party and others to step on others' toes. And some are offended and they hold grudges. And there are all sorts of conflicts that occur within the church. From issues over hair to health to what people eat or drink. Issues that have nothing to do perhaps with the scriptures or little to do with morality or doctrine. These issues invade churches. And I shared with you last week how in seminary I learned that many more churches split over the subject of music than they do over doctrine. It's a very sad situation. Today, churches have found new ways to fight. An Associated Baptist Press article stated last September 6, 2006 reads this, quote, Church fights turn high-tech. Web is new weapon of choice. Memphis, Tennessee, ABP. Bellevue Baptist Church is on the cutting edge of a growing trend, at least when it comes to conflict. Like members from several other prominent churches nationwide, congregants in the Memphis area megachurch are using websites and blogs to post details about ongoing dissent within the ranks. But do such high-tech tactics empower church members to address conflict or merely make the conflict worse while airing the church's dirty laundry to the world? The issue at Bellevue involves pastors so-and-so, and a group of longtime church members who say he's receiving an inappropriately high salary, is pushing the church towards an elder-led system, and has forced out the popular music director. Others have said this individual uses intimidation and arrogance as his main modus operandi. Still more say he, they feel it's too soon to change the 30,000-member church after the 2005 death of legendary Pastor Adrian Rogers. This pastor, along with a strong contingent behind him, has denied the allegations. As part of the protest, Bellevue members have created a blog and uh, another website which includes letters from members, transcript of an interview with a concerned deacon, and links to sites of churches with comparable straits. And of a, as of September 26, the site has received more than 90,000 hits, unquote. 
Now, while we realize that some issues, perhaps even some of these, I don't know, are important, but there are many, many other issues, as I've shared with you last week, that are considered gray areas. Christians debate over whether or not it's okay to drink or dance or certain types of clothing or, you know, whether it be a, a, a tattoo or an earring or whatever it might be. And there are other areas that Christians debate over. And last week we learned that we saw in the first number of verses in the book of, uh, the book of uh, Romans in chapter 14 that we are to accept others with a weaker faith because God has accepted them. We are to accept the convictions of others because they do it for the Lord. And we are to accept others because God will judge them. Well, Paul comes now to a passage in which he not only says, well, we have to accept them, but these are the things to consider when we engage or consider whether or not our activities should include a particular gray area or area of contention in the Christian community. And the first of the four things that he states is in verses 13 through 15, and there's a little outline in your bulletin. And the first thing he says to them is, you need to consider and commit to not causing another to stumble. Commit to not causing another to stumble. Verse 13, it says this. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, which summarizes his previous verses, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. The first thing Paul writes is in the negative, not to judge. And when we hear that that statement about judging others, oftentimes it's in the context of a negative connotation. But there are two connotations that this particular word crino has. One can be negative, one can be positive. In fact, Paul uses both in the same sentence. Oftentimes when we think of judging someone else, we feel that, well, they're, they're being judgmental towards me. It's judgmentalism. It's the attitude that comes along with the action of judging. Nobody likes to be an object of being judged in a judgmental way. And Paul says that's not how we're to come across to each other. But on the other hand, there's another connotation of the word judge, which means to use your best judgment or to make a careful decision regarding, or as it's translated here, the word determine, to determine. And here he uses a play on words when he says, don't judge in a judgmental manner, but rather crino or make a determination, make a determination, not only a decision, but to make an informed judgment of this. Don't put a stumbling block. Don't put a stumbling block in a brother's way. Now you see, when he uses this play on words, he's not say, he's saying that it's not a, it's not wrong to make a, a judgment call on something. But don't attach the attitude that comes along with making that judgment. And you make a judgment as to whether something you ought to do is right or wrong for yourself or before the Lord or whatever it might be. We all make judgments like that. And it's easy sometimes for us to tack on the attitude that might come with it. We make judgment calls because of stereotypes because of perhaps a person's past or because of their family or because of their profession or because of their gender or because of their church or because of their race or whatever it is. Let's not be quick to pass judgment on someone with an attitude that is tacked on behind it. Rather, make a determination, make a good, sound judgment or a decision decision to say, you know what, I will not do something that will cause my brother to stumble. 
And this whole idea of causing another to stumble is a very important idea. Jesus mentions it. If you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus explains to the disciples that this is what they're to do. The children are coming to him and he's speaking to them. And he says in Matthew chapter 18, in that context, verse 6, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, a millstone wasn't this little tiny uh, piece of uh, ornament or a piece of jewelry that you might have around your neck. A millstone was used to grind and it was pulled by a donkey that was going around in a circle and it would weigh hundreds of pounds, maybe a couple hundred pounds or so. These things would be heavy and the Romans would use this as a form of execution. For a criminal, they would take a criminal and take him out probably on a, on a boat or maybe off of a cliff or something. And they would tie a couple hundred pound millstone around his neck and they would shove him into the sea. It was something perhaps that was even uh, at times more feared than crucifixion was. And so here Jesus says, look, it is better, it is so serious of a thing to cause someone else to stumble and to sin, to be the cause of, of leading someone away from God by your actions, that it would be better to die than to do that. So serious of a thing that it was. In fact, he goes on in verse 8 and 9 to keep oneself away from sin. It says in verse 8 and 9, If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to those than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. In other words, if a person doesn't know Christ and they say they come to Christ and they ask him, it's like that rich young ruler. And Jesus says to him, you know, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, well, you've got to sell all that you have and then come and follow me. And he was uh, testing him to see his willingness to give up everything for Christ. And there, see, this is where verse would apply. You know what? If something is keeping you from God, then get rid of it. Something is keeping you from coming to know Christ, then put it out of your life. Do whatever it takes, be it drastic or whatever. And I think it applies too in causing others to stumble and into sin and leading them away from God. Not to lead others into sin or not to, as in verse 15 in the book of Romans, and we look back at that passage. Don't hurt your brother because of food, verse 15. Or don't, viol- don't cause them to violate their conscience or tempt them. Because it says there in the text, if you do, you're no longer walking in love. You're thinking of yourself. You're no longer thinking of the other person. You're not walking in love as it says. We're walking rather in selfishness or pride. And, you know, frankly speaking, that's how many of us are. When we want to do something, we want to do it. And we think less of oh, how others might uh, uh, be affected by the things that we do. So we are to watch out and not cause others to stumble and be willing to refrain from doing those things that might cause someone to stumble. Now, the passage isn't, re- isn't in relationship to somebody who simply has a different conviction and they may not be cause, uh, uh, to, to cause them to sin. 
In other words, if a person who is a, a strict legalist were to come into your Bible study or come into the church, we're not to all oh, follow whatever their conviction is because it depends whether or not they themselves would be drawn away from God or caused to stumble. I thought to myself, what would happen if a, if a, if a Seventh-day Adventist or somebody from that background who practices the Sabbath, who professes Christ as his personal Savior, moved in next door to me? And they were to say to me, well, what would, well, you know, I don't think you should be doing your yard work on Saturday. After all, that's the Sabbath. And so it depends, you know, if, 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 if it would cause them to, to, to go away from God or cause them not to come to Christ or whatever, then of course you refrain. But for some who just believe that and their, their faith and their belief is simply different than yours, then of course this doesn't apply in causing them to some they simply have a different conviction than you. But if we're leaders especially, others look to leaders as being examples to others. We have to be more careful about the things that we do because we may cause others to stumble. And we have to be very, very conscientious about those things. Because there are many things that are permissible, but not everything is beneficial. And so that leads to the second point that Paul makes in verse 16 to 18. Do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy. So secondly, he points out, don't risk losing your testimony before others. Don't risk losing your testimony before others. You remember in the context of this passage, there were some who came to know Christ, perhaps they were Jews, coming out of a strict, legalistic, Judaic faith. And they came to Christ, but yet they believed that you still needed to hold to the Sabbath. And they believed that meat had to be prepared in a certain way so it was kosher. And they had believed that only certain types of foods could be eaten. In fact, some of them, as it says, as we read in our scripture passage, some of them just decided not to eat meat at all. Because they couldn't trust the meat that was coming from the meat market, whether or not it was prepared and pleasing to the Lord. And so they restricted themselves and didn't eat. And they restricted themselves and said, well, I'm going to practice the Sabbath. But there were Gentiles who came from a different background. They had come out of a pagan faith. For them, they had no sort of conviction regarding eating meat. In fact, pork, which the Jews didn't eat, pork in the Greco-Roman world was considered a delicacy. And so they would eat. And Paul says here, look, by your eating and drinking, don't, uh, don't, don't cause another one to stumble. Don't cause another one and ruin your testimony before God. And be careful of what you do, how others would view that. How, uh, how would others view that? How would others, would it, would it hurt your testimony even before a non-Christian world? Because, you know, this says, don't let what is spoken of be a, spoken of evil, that others might look at that. And say that is evil. You know, in the Corinthian church as well, they had a similar problem. And Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And the scenario was basically like this. A strong Christian, one who felt like they could eat anything, would go along with a weak Christian, both of them believers, to a meal. The weak Christian would say, no, I, I can't eat meat. And the book of Corinthians, it spells out what we're to do. You know, they go to a friend's house. This Gentile, this person who doesn't know Christ, is hosting a party. And they decide they're going to serve steak or, and pork. And so, you know what? The one who is weak says, oh, no, I can't eat that meat. I'm not sure how it would be. And I feel like God would not be pleased if I do. And so here is the strong Christian 
who is a believer, and his brother here is refraining from eating. And he realizes that if he eats, it might cause his brother to stumble and feel like he's pressured to eat and violate his conscience to be a good-mannered person. So whom is he supposed to do? What is the strong Christian supposed to do? Is he supposed to eat and not offend the host who has served this wonderful meal? Or is he not to eat and thus, thus, you know, be courteous to not offend, a, not offend his Christian weaker brother? And the text says it very clearly in the book of Corinthians. It says that he is to what? To love his brother first and to refrain from eating so that his brother would not be caused to stumble. Better to offend those who don't know Christ, that they might see and say, you know what, this brother looks out for the other one who knows him. And that love between them would be attractive. That love between them would show them as a testimony of what Christ would do. And that's what it says we're to do. Christians look out for each other. Rather than saying, you know what, I'm not going to let what other people think control me. And you ever hear people say that? Or I don't care about what others think. I'm going to do whatever I think is going to be right. And in consideration, without any consideration of what others think, or what others' testimonies might be, or what your testimony might be, I should say, we are asking ourselves, how will others view my choices? Or what kind of testimony will I have if I do this activity? What are my actions communicating to those who don't know Christ? Or will my activity or actions communicate something potentially negative? And if our activity or choices put our testimony at risk, then the wiser choice would be not to do it because others might stumble. It may be perfectly acceptable. It may be acceptable in some people's eyes, but it may cause others to speak evil of what we do. And sometimes we find that out later as we grow in Christ, as we decide, you know, that's not the right thing to do. I shared with you last year, last uh, week that, you know, uh, during the um, Victorian era, there were two preachers, you know, Charles Spurgeon. And there was Joseph Parker who fellowshiped and, and shared the pulpit and had a wonderful friendship until Joseph Parker began to go to the theater. And Charles Spurgeon, who was known as the Prince of Preachers, accused him of going to the theater and became such a great conflict between the two because Joseph Parker would, would point out, I think, that, that Charles Spurgeon would smoke cigars. Do you know, here he was. They were in conflict such that it ended up in the newspaper. We don't know exactly, you know, what went on, all of the details. But one day, Charles Spurgeon was walking by a shop and he saw a sign that read this, quote, We sell the cigar that Charles Spurgeon smokes, unquote. And then he knew that his testimony was widespread and it was not good. And he decided to quit just like that. There were many things that are permissible for Christians, but not everything is beneficial. There are many things we can do, but perhaps shouldn't do. And Christians even, like I mentioned last week, debate over the idea of smoking in certain parts of the country they do. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, though, gives us some principles in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you turn your Bibles there to verse 23, where Paul gives instruction, all, all things he says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 23. For he shares after that passage speaking of whether or not one should eat food that is sacrificed to idols. He says to them, verse 23, all things are lawful. 
but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Now, of course, all means all things that are not unlawful are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Some things simply don't build you up and they're simply a, a waste of time or they're, they're, they're distractions to you and they're, they're, they're distractions to the soldier who is supposed to be single-minded. And he says a couple of chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12 says something similar. He says for himself, 1 Corinthians 6:12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. I will not be mastered by anything. It might be permissible for me, but perhaps is it something that I might be inclined to be addicted to? Or might it master me? Does it consume my mind? And some people end up justifying things that they do when they're already their mind and their heart is so captured by whatever activity it is. And they're inclined to do that. And, and so it says, you know what? I don't want to be mastered by anything. And whether it be eating a certain food or playing certain games or certain activities where it dominates the life. It begins to dominate the life and it's hard to pull them away from this particular game or this internet thing or whatever it might be. It's hard to pull them away. I will not be mastered by anything and then it becomes what a sin for me. And we look at that and say, what am I to do? What is my testimony to the world when I engage in these things? We ask ourselves, what is our testimony to a lost and dying world? And some people say, well, it doesn't really matter again. I'm going to do what I'm going to do and all sorts of things like that. But Paul says, no, be careful about your testimony. Imagine to ourselves if, 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 if Billy Graham, the evangelist, began to do anything that, you know, fancied his, his mind, you know, that he was going to uh, maybe drink and smoke and go to uh, spend, go to late night parties and decided that he was going to spend money on all sorts of things. And people would look at that. I tell you, the media would have a heyday with that. Because even the world has a standard by which they expect Christians to live up to. And sometimes what we do affects our testimony before a non-Christian world. Even, even things that are perfectly acceptable. I remember when I had a lunch with my boss's boss when I worked at the bank. And, uh, and he was the CIO or the chief information officer and he was buying lunch and, you know, he and I were, were going out to lunch. And I, my intention was I was going to share with him, uh, we were going to talk about the, you know, what he believed. That's what my, my hope was. We were, going to, he, we were going to talk about faith and the things of faith. And so that was my intention. And while well, I was a bit tired. And so when the lady came, waitress came over and asked us what we wanted, I said, well, I'll have a Diet Coke. Now, there's nothing wrong with a Diet Coke, but perhaps it wasn't the best choice at that time. It wasn't good for my testimony. Why? Because I knew, and I very well knew for a long, long time, my boss's boss is a high priest in the Mormon church. And they, of course, view caffeine, coffee, coke as, a, as you know, a, a drug. And so they stay away from that. And here I was drinking a Coke down and thinking to myself, oh, no, maybe I shouldn't have ordered this. And here we were. But God blessed the time in that we were able to talk about the things that they believed and talked about Mormonism and, and some of the things like that. And yet, for me, I believed even since that day, I needed to watch what I did, even in things that were perhaps not, not necessarily had anything to do with morality. But what would my testimony be? 
And if my testimony were to be marred, then I should be willing to give it up. You see, the more mature a Christian becomes, the more willing they ought to be to give up things for the sake of Christ and the sake of testimony. Why? Because the, 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 the more mature you are, the more important the glory of God becomes. The more important the things of God and the more important that Christ be made known and the building up of my brother or my sister in Christ becomes. And so all other things fade. And it doesn't matter so much about other things. And so the greater and the more mature we are, the more the greater our willingness to surrender those things that are neutral in the Christian faith that Christians debate over and that we say, well, you know what, I, may, I, I just shouldn't do that anymore. So we commit to not causing one to stumble. And secondly, do not risk losing our testimony. Thirdly, we build others up, not tear them down. We build others up, not tear them down. Verse 19. We pursue the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. So how do we respond how do we respond when there are differences in gray areas? Do we make peace? Do we, do we build others up? Or do we tear them down? Do we say, no, 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 you're just wrong. You're just wrong. I'm going to do this, you know, do whatever it might be. I mean, this doesn't mean that there's no room for discussion. Because there's good discussion that comes along between Christians. But there's a difference between a discussion and an argument and a debate. There's a healthy debate and then there's a negative argument where one tries to win the argument. And those who are inclined to that, it might be wiser simply to stay out of the discussion or stay out of the, the, the discussion because it might lead to an argument. And you'll find some people are more prone to ha trying to have the last word on everything, to try and have the answer and, and to win the argument, to win the debate. But, you know, few times do you ever find that somebody is then eventually persuaded Sure, they might go along with you, but their heart is not one. And so we do things to build up one another. Our actions are to build others up rather than being selfish and tearing them down when it comes to gray areas, even though we may feel that we are right because both parties feel that they are right. And we're to move along with them at their pace. We may know that we're right or whatever. Or we may believe that they're right, but... We're to make peace so that there might be unity in the body of Christ. And we move along at their speed, willing to give up those things. Do you remember when ships crossed the Atlantic and during the World War, what they would do is they would go on a convoy? And the spirit of this passage is just like those convoys because those battleships and those escort ships would move no faster than the slowest moving ship in that convoy. If everyone decided, well, I'm just going to go off and steer my own ship as fast as I want and go my own way, it would be disastrous for all. And so that's the idea here. Commit to not causing another to stumble, not risk losing our testimony and to build others up and not tear them down. And fourthly, and lastly, be true to our convictions before God. Be true to our convictions before God. The faith which you have, have as your own before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Remember, there were two groups of people in the church at Rome. Some felt that certain days, certain foods were holier than others. And others believed that you need to abstain. Both were doing it while giving thanks to God. Both were doing it for the glory of God. 
And since their conviction was true before the Lord, they wanted to do it to honor God. They wanted to do it because they wanted to please the Lord. Those were their convictions. They were to be true to them. We're to be true to our convictions and not force or impel others and their convictions to come around and force them to do when their consciences might be violated. We might and we have to be careful not to put them on some type of guilt trip for the things that they believe to be true, but they don't want to do it. And we make them do it anyways. And thus they sin against God. Doesn't mean that, you know, our, our, our conscience is always right when he says here, you know, be true and, and he says, you know, don't doubt and whatever it might be. It doesn't always mean that our consciences, as I shared with you last week, are always right. Our consciences might be misguided because of our experience. Our consciences might be seared or insensitive because of the things that we have filled our mind and our heart with. But that is why it is important to have the conscience informed by the word of God, of what is true, of what is good, of what is right, of what is wise, of what is right before the Lord, what would please God. And that is why it is so important to be in the word of God so that our consciences and our heart and our mind might be in tune to what God would desire of us. And then when we come to a decision of wisdom, then we make the wise decision. We are to be true As C.B. Cranfield writes in his commentary on Romans, quote, Paul has advice for the man who is weak in the faith, the man with the scrupulous conscience. It may be that this may disobey or silence his scruples. He may sometimes do something because everyone else is doing it. He may do it because he does not wish to stand in a minority of one. He may do it because he does not wish to be different. He may do it because he does not wish to court ridicule or unpopularity Paul's answer is that if for any of these reasons a man defies his conscience he is guilty of sin if a man in his heart of hearts believes a thing to be wrong and if he cannot rid himself of the eradicable feeling that it is forbidden then if he does it for him it is sin a neutral thing only becomes the right thing when it is done out of faith, out of the real reason conviction that it's the right thing to do. The only motive for doing anything is that a man believes it is right. When a thing is done out of a social convention, out of fear of unpopularity, to please men, then it is wrong. Unquote. So we are to be true to the heart of God and the heart and the conscience that God has placed in us. To be people who choose to do what is right because it is the right thing to do. Not to fear people and say, well, I'm going to be ridiculed or I don't want to be out of the crowd or I don't want to be alone or, or whatever it might be or everyone else is doing it. But to do what is right before the Lord and to be true to your convictions in areas that are not explicitly or implicitly taught in the scriptures. So when we come across areas that Christians debate over, what are we to do? Commit to those things that would not cause another brother to stumble. Don't do it if it might cause the risk of losing your testimony. And build others up and to be true to our convictions before God. And when we make these kinds of choices, we ask ourselves tough questions. We ask ourselves tough questions and make yourself answer them. Ask yourself, why am I doing what I am doing? What is my motive? What is the motive of my heart? Is it selfishness or is it out of love for my brother? 
Is it because I simply want to do what I want to do? Or is it because I care about others? I care about God. I care about His name. I care about my testimony before others. Or is it because I am self-willed or selfish or I'm acting out of selfishness or because I want to fill my own desires with my own life? Or am I doing it because I want to please God and be a witness for Christ? Am I being true to the Lord and true to His Word. When we ask and ask and answer these questions for ourselves, we come to answers, I think, that will be much more clear, that will make things that are perhaps gray to us clear in whatever situation we're in. And God will be honored and God will be glorified in the process. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, how so many times we come in life, the decisions that we make, should I or shouldn't I do this or engage in this activity? And so oftentimes we ask ourselves questions that focus on us. Rather than focusing on your glory and the good of others, Lord, we ask ourselves what would make me happy or what would make me have the most joy and fun Or what would feed my needs? But Father, may we look, Father, to glorifying you in all that we do, that your name might be made great. May we do it out of a love for you and a love for others. In Jesus' precious name, amen.